Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Draft Reading Series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse's workshops that hovers around a given theme. The draft happens once per eight-week session every winter, spring, late summer, and fall, and writers in the workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the draft 16.0 was gift and or re-gifting and featured memorist Kathy Bell, novelist Joe Harkins, YA writer Ida Olson, and short story writer John Hawley. Thank you for coming. I'm Mike Henry, Executive Director of Lighthouse. This is the lovely, amazing Ms. Andrea Dupree, Program Director of Lighthouse. Uh, this is the draft 16.0 holiday party and volunteer appreciation party. More on that later. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Um, so, the draft. Do you want to explain what the draft is or shall I? You're on a roll. <clears throat> Are you sure? Okay, so um, what's the draft again? What is it? Oh, yeah. So uh, we came up with this idea to celebrate and to highlight the amazing talent that is in all of our workshops. And so we came up with this idea, like, we're going to draft people. They're going to have to be conscripted. They're going to come up here, and they're going to read, whether they like it or not. So we've drafted four wonderful people tonight, right? They're totally excited. Yeah. No, they... Voluntary. Voluntary draft. Um, totally excited that's one of them now yeah um we have joe harkins kathy bell ida olson and john holly let's give it up for them brave souls brave souls so let's get started um first up we have joe harkins and she's going to be introduced by the um very handsome Bill Henderson. Um, I get to introduce Bill. I've, I've introduced you a few times. I usually mention you as handsome. Yeah, I, I, that's the first thing. When I think of Bill, the first thing I think of is handsome. And then um, neat. Very neat. I don't know. Is he blushing as much? I'm, I'm blushing just talking about him. Um, uh, Bill's been teaching for a, a while now, a few years. Um, he's obviously... Uh, an excellent teacher. He's one of our most popular teachers. Um, he just has this knack for um, getting people just stuck on writing novels, beautiful novels, over and over again. He's just a fantastic teacher. Um, and he's just a fun guy. So please give it up for Bill Henderson. Thanks, Mike. Um, I'm here to introduce Joe Harkins. I'm not confused at all about Joe Harkins. She has a great laugh, anyone who knows her. That's one thing. She's from northern Wyoming. That's another great thing. She um, can bake baked goods over a campfire. That's a good thing. And they're good. They're really good. Um, she showed up in the advanced workshop um, in the spring um, with the most amazing novel, um, and she told me this evening it was first draft, which kind of made me want to kill myself. <laughs> um, so you're in for a treat. It's a beautiful, beautiful novel. Joe Harkins. So just to give you a bit of context, the main protagonist of my novel is a woman named Lena, and she runs a nonprofit disaster relief agency. Lena also has some problems. Um, she's a very cold, emotionally rigid woman who is somewhat inflexible and very keen on disaster response. And she sells spots to clients people she called clients, to show them disasters so that they can be better prepared for their own. She believes in doing this. Just to give you a bit of context for this specific scene, uh, Lena has a bad habit of classifying people in disasters by the kind of calf muscles they have. <laughs> if they're very high, she calls them dots. 
If they're very long and kind of low slung, she calls them dashes. And in this, and right before the scene, her co-founder of her disaster relief agency has died in a mudslide. His body has never been recovered, and he died as a result of Lena's addiction to cough syrup. So, <laughs> you may laugh, but this is going to be a little dark. <laughs> All right, so this is an excerpt from my novel, The Disaster Tourist. Oh, and by the way, this happens right after the Haiti earthquake. After Haiti, after Jack's death, after the reporters were gone and Lily had planted her rosebush for Jack on the perimeter of the airfield, Ida boxed up Jack's personal effects. They had no body to give to Jack's sister. They were sending Jack's sister a box of effects. The box was in the conference room. Lena had to go through it. With Jack gone, she had to assimilate his responsibilities. She had a list written in pencil on a brown paper bag in her pocket. Count bandage boxes. Make sure Lily ate enough. Watch for grease on the concrete floor of the hangar. Prepare for tornado season. Be the only loadmaster. She had a headache. Her fingers hurt, but she had to do these things. And she had to go through a box. She would have to go into the conference room. The box would sit on the long brown table, surrounded by posters on the walls and crumbs of eaten sandwiches. The crumbs would irritate her fingertips. Lena would have to sit in a black folding chair in front of the box. She would have to lift out each item. She would hold each item briefly. She would place each item on the table. Blue wool socks, an extra packet of tea, Tan shirt with the Army Quartermaster Creed on it. My forges burned at Valley Forge. Down frozen, rutted roads, my oxen hauled. Outside was the uncertainty of early spring. The sidewalks wet. Flower tips were melting the white snow into small bowls around their green stems. Lena would have to lift out Jack's favorite book. Layers protected the pages. Hand-tooled leather binding and oilcloth twice wrapped, tied with the ribbon of a dead seven-year-old girl from Turkey. A book he carried everywhere, the journals of Lewis and Clark. She would hold this book, and she would pick up his socks and his tea and his book. She would wrap packing tape around the box. She would address the box to his sister in St. Louis. She would send his effects away. But before she put the box back in the book, book back in the box, Lena would leaf through the layers of pages. Passages would be underlined, annotated, stained with mud and blood and water. Lewis's description of the aurora. Light appeared to darken and sometimes nearly obscured and open. A great space light and containing floating columns which appeared to approach each other in retreat leaving the lighter space and no time of the same appearance. Clark, we took some loner observations, meaning lunar. Lewis, the clouds continued to follow each other in rapid succession. Clark, we set forth to join my friend, companion, and fellow laborer, Captain Lewis. Jack had written notes about the death of Captain Lewis in the back of his book. We are all hoping to die from mechanical weathering, he said. Captain Lewis did not. He had thought about the moment Clark had learned of Lewis's death, the letter to inform Mr. Thomas Jefferson, the uncertainty of how Lewis had died, a thief in the night, a struggle with his head. Either way, he lost a fight with someone. Lena would hold Jack's book and think how much Jack had loved the data Lewis and Clark collected, the data in layers and layers, data sediment, and settled into the pages are the various words we all love and let our tongues dwell over. A word from science, that particular dead bump on a seed that splits and releases a live tendril, a name. Clark kept misspelling beautiful as bountiful, 
Perhaps he combined beautiful and bountiful into one word, data of sentiment. He liked calling Lewis his friend. Lena would hold this book. She would look out the windows, at no time the weather of the same appearance. She would wonder if we are all great space-like containing floating columns of memory, if we appear to approach each other in retreat, leaving lighter space behind, at no time of the same appearance. Lewis had been shot on the expedition. Clark thought his friend would die. Clark didn't know if he could take it. Then there he was, taking it. The room Lena sat in would appear to darken, but would be opened by sun appearing in light streaks through the clouds. Lena would sit taking lone observations. Years after Lewis's death, before the biggest funeral west of St. Louis, Clark would whisper, Captain Lewis, I am coming to meet you. Finally, Lena went into the conference room. Outside, she saw flower tips in the snow. The snow and flowers appeared to approach each other in retreat. The clouds followed each other in rapid succession. The box sat on the table. She sat down in a black folding chair. She lifted out the book. My friend, companion, and fellow laborer. She thought, I live longer than you. I am bountiful. You are beautiful. She picked up the box. She packed it. She sent it to his sister. And she went back to her list of things to do. Jack was dead. She had to pull her team together and keep working. And they kept working. In March, Lena noticed her notes about the victims and disasters had changed. The normal notations, parallel in their flow, began to break up. Dots and dashes had become nomenclature in their description of bodies. Found in the street under a broken rubber tree, blue shirt, one sandal, black hair, and a dash. She was translating their identities using the languages of their bodies. A mother in Sumatra did not just have dots in her calves, but muscles like fists, and Lena immediately led the woman to the body to whom she belonged. Jack was dead. They had to keep working. They kept working. Tornadoes broke out in Missouri and Minnesota. They arrived in Yazoo City just hours after a storm, and Lena stood in the bewildered grasses, throwing directions into the downed remains of a church. Floods in Arkansas and Tennessee. One of the jeeps broke down in Arkansas, and Lena stood cursing at a broken transfer chain. A flood in Poland. An eruption in Chile, slumps in California. An insect flew from a dirty knuckle. They had to keep going. If life was not taken by ash or shaking or wind, the life could still be destroyed somehow, full stop. Homes gone, children gone, churches gone, fields gone or the cruel, dual nature of flood and famine. The furrowed fields torn in half by a heavy line of debris, the storm surge of breath in those asking for help, the recognition of old men by how they ran, the center of gravity their knees, never moving their hips or bellies, all the questions of how to respond and restore wrapped up in nights of destruction and cough syrup. Spring broke down. She was counting dots and dashes to the ticking of engines in the heat. The heat was a mouth. In Indonesia, sulfur from the nearby eruption they were responding to seeped into her bed, and she would wake in the morning and thumb her eyes, excavating the dried slices of tears, like slices of dried fruit, dried pear tears. Lily said, how the people here must suffer with the sulfur. The bald bone knob of the sun hammered at them. She had sweat shiny shins she was seeing through a salt light. In Bangladesh, she began to sweat out other elements, boron, for example. On a shoreline in Peru, they watched aftershocks break out of a cliff, turning their heads and hurling up their hands in the bulky clouds of dust and the feather smell of gravel, trying not to choke on the spall. Sand herded boulders down the slope like wild horses. What other minerals move like animals? After the Haitian earthquake, Lily had said she'd wanted to take a hammer to the world or beat in her own heart. 
Jack had responded to Lily with love. They kept working. The layers of Lena's notes built up, the words themselves breaking down into drops and lines. All of the bodies, dead, injured, searching, became just dots and dashes. There were no hands, no heads, no feet. Their legs were signals. Their clasps were beacons. She stood at the base of a slope in Columbia, her head on the hood of the Jeep, mouth half-opened, staring at the dots and dashes moving on the hill. Dots and dashes tamping, dots and dashes tamping, dots and dashes tramping. None of the bodies were jacks. In landslides, the dots and dashes were muddy. In earthquakes, the dots and dashes were broken. In floods, the dashes and dots disappeared. Lena started noticing dots and dashes in grocery stores, in sandals and summer dresses. Dots and dashes played soccer in the park. Driving home from a deployment, there were dashes on the roads and hard yellow dots coming toward her. She noticed the blinking red dots on the dashes of the radio towers. A drop, a line, slippers on a wet street near the curb. She wanted to close her eyes and sleep, but would see dots and dashes in neon when she did so. She tried not to look at delineator posts. She avoided words with lowercase eyes, and thus all disasters became catastrophe and tragedy. A drop, a line, a line, a drop, a noose. Dash and dot. She laid face down on the rug in her office to see dots of debris in the fibers, sand grains, ash flecks, thread dregs. She began to vacuum the rug four times a day, then would stretch out again, her hip bones and knees balking against the hard cement below, her fingers clutching the fibers, looking, looking for the line and drop, looking for the full stop. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. That was beautiful. Or should I say, bountiful. <laughs> Did I pronounce it right? Yeah, something like that, bountiful. Um, next up, we have Kathy Bell, and she will be introduced by the most tattooed member of our faculty, um, Jason Heller. Hey, hello. Uh, So Kathy Bell is going to be reading tonight uh, a piece called Wash Me Clean. Uh, And Kathy is currently taking her second class with me. Uh, The first class she took was Intro to Narrative Nonfiction, and now she's taking the Narrative Nonfiction Workshop. Um, This piece she's been developing for months and is a real breakthrough for her. And it's the type of piece uh, that I know... Um, from my experiences with her as she's been working on this. Um, the type of piece of writing that keeps you up, uh, it whispers at you all times of the day while you're writing, um, and uh, it will not uh, leave you alone uh, until you complete it. And uh, I think the biggest breakthrough that Kathy had with this piece was not only the poignancy and quality of it, but also the fact that when that story won't let you go, that's when you have to keep going with it. Um, And with that, I'd like to have Kathy come up and read. Thank you. Hello. I will not have as much eye contact as that last person did. So forgive me. Okay, that was excellent, by the way. Thank you. Okay, this is called Wash Me Clean. She refuses to bathe anymore. Graham stinks of aged urine and dirty clothes. Her greasy hair stuck to the side of her head. At first, I buy her body wash and put it in the bathroom, letting her know it's there. But when I return to her house the next Saturday to do my weekly chores, the bottle sits untouched. The tub's still dusty, full of cat hair. Maybe she's afraid of falling again. Graham, how come you don't take showers anymore? 
Oh, I do sometimes, but it hurts my knees to get in the shower. I clean up in the sink. But will you wash and curl my hair? It looks terrible, she says, patting her dense, slightly grayed hair. Her hair, when clean, is radiant, full, and abundant. She's lucky. Many older women face thinning, lifeless hair, but not Graham. Photos of her later years always elicit widened eyes. They say, your grandmother is so pretty. You can tell she was gorgeous when she was young. But along with her memory, her vanity has faded, and she doesn't know enough to be grateful for her beauty anymore. I decide showers or bathing are no longer something she cares about. Whatever her reason for not wanting them, it falls on me to help her bathe. Grandpa hasn't even noticed all the things she doesn't do anymore. I'm leery about undertaking the task. Never had I imagined bathing her. I ask her if I can help her shower. She shakes her head. I say, but I'll help you. It'll be over before you know it, and you'll feel so much better. No, I'll take one later, honey. Or maybe she lies, saying, I already took one. Sometimes she says, I'll take one tomorrow, or simply, not today. Graham, I'm taking my whole day to come over here and help you. Can you please just shower for me? Please, because you love me? Sometimes she doesn't see through my manipulation and agrees. Other times we fight. I try to be patient and remind myself how I love this woman, but after months of hearing no, I yell at her. Graham, you stink. Do you think I want to be here on my day off every week doing this? Please help me out here. In order not to lose my mind along with hers, I begin bathing her only every other week. I can't handle the fighting anymore. Fine, let her live with the stench a week longer. I give. But eventually I learn. Maybe it takes me one year, maybe five. But I figure out the best tactic is to appeal to her vanity. I realize I've misjudged her. She does know how to be grateful for her beauty after all. Graham, let's get you in the shower. Then I'll curl your hair the way you like it and paint your fingernails. You'll be so beautiful. Oh, I'd love for you to do my hair, sweetie. Can't you just wash it in the sink? No, I can only curl your hair if you take a shower first. Okay, she pauses. Now? My shoulders unclench and I breathe one heavy breath, knowing I have won. Yes, now. I turn on the water, adjusting the temperature while she undresses. Sometimes she's still in her pajamas and robe, but surprisingly most mornings she's dressed on her own and made a bowl of bran flakes. These two habits stick with her, even as every other ability or pleasure she once had sits untouched in the cluttered, dusty attic of her brain. I ask her to test the water. It's never right the first time. But I'm so relieved that she's this close to letting me shower her. All previous frustration has faded. I adjust the temperature as many times as she needs me to. No, that's too hot, she says, yanking her hand back. Okay, how about now? Still too hot. Is this better? I step back again to let her feel the water. I think that's okay. Good. Here, let me help you step over the tub. Grandma's overweight now, but remnants of her former grace radiate from her, like a dilapidated chapel that still emits something unnameable, yet sacred. Even full of grace, though, her left knee is twice as big as her right, so I help her bend it and lift her leg gently, gently over the tub. She cries out in pain, and I wince, guilty for forcing her to do this one thing she hates. Now we begin. Graham sits on her metal shower chair, and I give her a washcloth to cover her eyes so they'll be safe from the stinging shampoo. Suddenly, I am the child again. She's scrubbing my hair in the tub. I am the one with water rushing over me. At home, my dad and stepmother don't bathe me. I shower or take a bath by myself. But when I'm with Grandma, bathing me is her chance to reconnect with me, to make sure I'm unsoiled and pure in this moment, to wash away all that isn't perfect when we're apart. She fills the bathtub with her pots and pans, measuring cups and big plastic spoons. I measure my creations, cook them, and stir them until it's time for her to wash me clean. I cover my eyes with the washcloth, and she tilts my head back the same way I'm now tilting hers. The shampoo is washed away. Graham wets and wrings out her washcloth three times, 
to make sure all the detergent is gone. It's always three times. She says, I'm ready, placing the cloth back over her eyes and face. I drench her hair and conditioner, rubbing her scalp gently before rinsing again. Her saggy-skinned arms, firm legs, and curved back are next to be lathered in our ritual, cleaning her, rinsing her, making her human again. The water flows down her back, and all the thoughts of what we are losing and of loss sweep down the drain with the dirty bubbles of soap. This is the holy well where we meet, the place where our forgotten memories don't matter, where only this moment is important. When we're almost done, I help her stand up. Okay, you wash your private parts now, and I'll turn away. I look away, trying to give her some dignity, or maybe I'm just preserving the last little bit of my innocence. I douse her with warmth, the warm flow of water one final time. I begin to dry her off with a clean towel, help her out of the bathtub, and then finish patting her dry. She sits down naked on the toilet seat lid, with the towel draped around her shoulders, shivering like a child. I kneel before her and begin to lotion up her parched and wrinkled skin, starting with her crooked toes, inching my way up, giving her a light massage on her full round calves. As I rub lotion into her back, I think this is the only time when she is touched when I touch her. This is the only time when her skin is clean and moist when I bathe her. I ache knowing she can no longer make herself feel better with the daily ritual of bathing, where we seek to shed our bodily pain, our stress, our grime. She doesn't know anymore how important the water is. Or perhaps she does, because she smiles at me and says, I feel so much better. Restoring her skin to its former pink hue, we are both now renewed, reborn. Her reward for showering has come at last. We move to the kitchen and assemble at the table. I blow dry her hair, standing behind her, rubbing her scalp as I dry. Curling and teasing and shaping her hair, she sits, eyes closed, with a drunken smile and purrs. Oh, sweetie, I love you messing with my hair. It's so relaxing. I rub her shoulders and tell her I'm glad. I touch her as much as I can, knowing it'll be two weeks before she's touched this way again. Nearly a decade has passed since I bathed her that first time. I'm caught up reading a book about Chinese mothers who gave up their daughters, a book of mother-daughter loss and love. The young girls often wondered how their mothers could give them up. Did they not love them? Although my life is not nearly as tragic as the stories told, the pain of not knowing if your mother loves you, or worse yet, in my case, knowing for sure she doesn't love you, leaves me with a sad parallel to my own life. But like the adopted mothers who brought love to those abandoned girls, I know the love of another woman, my grandmother. After I finish the book, I fill the bathtub with warm water and sink down, immersing myself. I shampoo my hair, feeling my grandma's fingers through my own. It's the first time I'm sensing her since she died eight months ago. Or am I feeling her for the first time since she disappeared through the dark forest of dementia? I had forgotten the woman she was before, the vibrant, charismatic, nurturing matron. The long, hard years wore away what used to be, along with her memory. But her illness, that scary nighttime mist, stole away my memories, too. Tonight, though, I do remember. I was once a child, and she my caretaker. I recall a time when I felt safe, content, and nurtured because of her. I didn't notice when that feeling left me, but I long for it now. She scrubs my feet, my legs, and my arms. Plugging my ears, I submerge my head in the water, moving it side to side to rinse my hair. I can feel her rubbing my scalp, breaking loose the soil particles. Her always soft hands are still touching me, forever washing me clean. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. That was very touching. Um, While I'm thinking about it, uh, two announcements. Um, The first one is uh, Dan mentioned the um, write-a-thon. There are posters all around. It says, write your face off. 
Um, sounds kind of violent to me. But so um, December 16th, do I have the day right? December 16th, um, 9 to 9, you can come. 8, eight to 8, <laughs> 9 to 9, whatever. <laughs> 15th, 16th, some, a couple weeks from now. Um, you don't have to stay for the whole 12 hours, right? You don't, you don't, you honestly don't. You, you can, you could, you know, you can come in and out and just, so the idea is just like, just, just crank it out for, for as long as you need to do it. So you're all welcome. Hopefully we'll see you there. We'll be supplying probably donuts and, I don't know, coffee and cigarettes and, you know, gum and we, you know, we actually have a lot of spiced vodka from the Mary Carr event still, so maybe we'll break that out. It's 12 hours. That's a long time. You could get drunk, throw up, pass out, and wake up and write again. You could just, just kind of... It's a long time. Um, yeah. Um, the second thing. What was the second thing? Damn, I forgot what the second thing was. The next person. Well, that, there was that, and there was something else. It was really important. All right, it'll come to me. So, all right. Um, Next up is the uh, YA novelist Ida Olson, and she's going to be introduced by the second most tattooed (laughs) faculty person, faculty instructor we have, um, the lovely, adorable Victoria Hanley. (laughs) Do you know something I don't know? Okay, so that last reading was really extremely touching, and um, so I'm trying to change the mood. Thank you for helping with that. Um, So the great thing about the young adult genre today is just how very clean and sharp and fresh are the lines, and uh, when I first saw Ida Olson's name on my roster... I succumbed to stereotypical thinking, and I thought, she's probably about 95. (laughs) Not that a 95-year-old could not write an exquisite young adult novel, (laughs) but it turned out that she was young and wears really nice boots really well. And she's a young adult librarian by day. And then by night or by deadline, she always gets the Red Lantern Award in our class. Uh, she writes this marvelous adult, young adult novel. And... Um, It was stretching it just a bit, the theme of gifting and re-gifting. But in the spirit of the season, a contagious disease. (laughs) Here she is. So I'm a little bit nervous. Um, I don't think I've ever talked to this many adults before. I'm, <laughs> I'm used to talking to teenagers, so like if you want to slouch in your chairs and roll your eyes and text in your laps, that's, that's perfectly fine. I'll be pretending you're doing that anyway. So, um. <laughs> Okay, this is tentatively titled Carrier. Signal undetected flashes across the interface screen. Satellite connection is down. No outside world. I rub my eyes and stumble toward the kitchenette. My options for the day are few. I read all the books and magazines from the last shipment, and Captain Curtis won't deliver a new crate until tomorrow. Later, if the weather stays too rough to dock his sea dory, the Lindy Lou. The wind moans as it sweeps up the rocky tail of Mouse Island. I stare out the cabin window while stale bread browns in the oven, but nothing moves on the mossy jumble of boulders. 
everything the wind wanted, it stole years ago. Only the white caps slapping against the shore show the strength of the storm. Kicking up my feet on the tottering wooden coffee table, I lean back on the patched sofa to eat toast and drink bitter camp coffee. As I chug the inky brew, ground stick in my teeth. Mornings without my tutor, Mrs. Wilson, lecturing on screen, remind me of snow days before the rot, hundreds of unscheduled minutes to while away. After eating, I abandon the dishes in the sink without disinfecting the kitchenette. Mrs. Wilson usually supervises that process through the shiny eye of the webcam. It doesn't make sense to clean the kitchen when there's no way to disinfect me, but Mrs. Wilson is deaf to my arguments. The CDC set the conditions, and she enforces them. The wind continues to howl its eerie song, but I decide to risk tangled hair and chapped cheeks to go outside. Walks on Mouse Island are more like scrambles since there's no clear path over the barren pile of rocks, but it's the best way to get my blood pumping without following the mind-numbing exercise discs that arrive periodically in the supply crates. The tide is low, but on its way back in as I tromp over rocks along the shore. Wearing rubber boots, I choose my steps carefully. Last spring, I slipped on an icy patch and sliced open my palm. I superglued it closed with trembling fingers just before blacking out. Not an experience I care to repeat. When I was little, my father always treated my injuries in the back office of his clinic. He would lean over whichever body part I had maimed and scrutinize it before speculating on the number of stitches needed to keep me from bleeding to death, but not before he offered to amputate the wounded body part. (laughs) Out here, I tend my own wounds. The rocks are moist with ocean spray, but not icy. The only ship, as far as I can see, is a tanker heading toward the port of Valdez. In fairer weather... I would use the binoculars Captain Curtis gave me to watch watch the fishing charters haul in their catch of flapping halibut and dancing silver salmon. Except for the Lindy Lou, ships aren't allowed to enter the ring of orange warning buoys that encircles Mouse Island, but they come as close as possible without breaking the rules. The wind eases as I continue around the island to the side that faces the shoreline. A quarter mile away, spruce trees drape the Alaskan coast in green. Sometimes looking across the water at the endless forest feels like dying of thirst in the ocean. Nothing much lives on Mouse Island. Nothing but me and the rot. Seagulls shriek and dive in the tidal pools along the jagged spit that forms the dark gray tail of the island. I watch their jealous antics as they snatch at small fish stranded on the rocks, but a flash of red catches my eye. Occasionally the island's tail will catch something interesting. Once I found a rubber ducky. Another time it was a cooler full of beer. I declared it finders keepers and didn't bother to tell Mrs. Wilson. But this time I'll have to tell. The body of a man in a red life vest lives, lies face down on the rocks below. Oh my gosh, I'm missing pages here. <laughs> here we go. For 10 seconds, I forget. 10 blessed seconds just long enough for the man to groan and try and push himself off the rocks, long enough for me to scramble down the boulders to his side. But as I reach for his arm, reality catches up. I can't help him. Hey, I call at him, but his only response is another groan. You have to get up. My voice cracks on the first words of the day. The sound of my voice, he flops onto his back, dark hair plasters to his face. He's younger than I thought, probably a teenager like me, His eyes fix on me, but his pupils look strange. I try to remember the stages of hypothermia. Mrs. Wilson insists I study cold weather survival to absolve herself of any guilt if I died out here. I should have paid more attention. His teeth chatter with such force I worry they'll break. Standing beside him, just out of arm's reach, I feel helpless. I can't touch you. You have to stand up on your own. He mumbles something, but I only catch one word. Ruz. Rose. Bile rises in my throat. You know me? He tries to push himself upright with sluggish movements. Help, Rose. I can't. It's not safe. Dry suit, he mumbles. His head tips forward, chin to chest. His entire body is covered except for his face. Under the life jacket, he wears a kayaker's dry suit. It may have saved his life in the nearly freezing water. 
I hope it's enough to keep him safe from me. You can't touch me, any part of me. Kneeling, I loop my arms under his and begin to pull. He's dead weight. Frigid water on the suit soaks my jacket and jeans, and the wind slices through like a knife. You're too heavy, I say by his ear, hoping he's still conscious. You have to help. His legs kick feebly against the rocks as I lift him upright. After a struggle, his boots gain a foothold, and he takes some of the weight off of me. We hobble. The trek back to the cabin lasts, excuse me, the trek back to the cabin takes hours, or maybe minutes. A few times he leans all his trembling weight on me. I dig my fingers into the nylon of the suit, trying to keep him conscious. If he goes down, I might not get him up again. My muscles burn as I drag him up the front steps. Inside the door, I let him crumple to the plywood floor so, he, so I can prepare the room. I dug on a pair of surgical gloves and dig a clean sheet out of the supply closet. They might not be enough to keep him safe from me, but he could be dead in a few hours anyway. Maybe I should let hypothermia take him. If he does, he'll just feel warm and go to sleep. His flesh won't fester and fall away, and his death won't be my fault. After spreading the sheet over the couch, I grab his arms for one more lift. When his knees bump against it, he collapses onto the sheet. I light the wood stove and hurry to the trunk in the corner where the winter blankets have lain untouched for months, long enough to be safe. I unbuckle his life jacket and unzip the dry suit. Violent shivers continue to rack his body. I can't remember if it's a worse symptom to shiver or to stop shivering. The suit didn't tight, seal tightly at the, his neck, so the clothes underneath are soaked. Rolling him on his side, I retrieve the suit from under him, then unbutton his shirt. His skin feels too cold through my gloves as I wrestle the shirt off his arms. A black compression sleeve like the ones my dad used to wear cycling covers his left arm. After removing his soaked sneakers, I unbutton his car- khaki cargo pants and tug them down his legs, trying not to look. He's too far gone to notice my embarrassment. Grabbing a few disposable hand warmers from the first aid kit, I shake the packets to activate before pressing them against his skin. Then I bury him in thick layers of blankets. He rises, mumbles, too hot. His tongue sounds like it's stuck to the roof of his mouth. Bad sign. He's not going to make it. There are procedures I'm supposed to follow. Mrs. Wilson and I practice for a breach of the island, but not like one like this. In all our scenarios, the intruders were bad guys, terrorists or something, not kayakers. I can't lock myself in the safe room below the cabin while this guy dies on my couch. Wet jeans stick to my thighs as I sit down at the computer interface and tap the screen. If I don't change soon, I'll end up like him, but first I need to call for, him for help. Signal undetected. Hurrying to the sink, I hit the power switch on the VHF radio mounted to the bottom of the cupboards and flip, flip the dial to channel 16 for the Coast Guard. Mayday, mayday, Mouse Island. Kayaker in distress, over. I hold my breath and wait for a response to crackle through the speaker. This is United States Coast Guard Station, Port Valdez. Go ahead, over. Kayaker in distress on Mouse Island. Satellite is down. Need a rescue, over. Stand by. Pauses drowned out by the blood pounding in my ears. Please. When the radio operator returns, his words are heavy with apology. Mouse Island is a no-go for restricted waters. You're on your own. With his mic still on, he takes a deep breath before adding, Valdez poured out. The mic slips from my grasp and hits the edge of the sink with a hollow thunk. My vision blurs. They can't just leave him here with me. I grab the mic again. He's going to die if you won't help. Over. Hysteria, hysteria chokes my voice. After 30 seconds of silence, a deeper voice says, This channel is not secure, Rose. This time I throw the mic. It smacks against the wall, then bounces on the end of the curled cord. They're not coming. When I turn, he's watching me, still trembling, but his hair has fallen back to reveal a pale, freckled face. If he survives the day, he'll answer for how he got here, how he recognized me. He won't make sense if I question him now. In books, when someone is freezing, the characters huddle together for warmth. I glance down at my gloved hands. My warmth is a trap. My body harbors a monster. The rot virus sheds out in saliva, sweat, and skin, always seeking a new host, unaware that it's already found the best bus ride of all, me. On anyone else's bus, the rot will seize the engine and cut the driver's throat, but not on mine. Trade-off is the rot rides my route for free forever. 
I glance around the room, wishing for a heating pad or something else to warm him faster. My eyes rest on a 50-pound sack of rice on top of the fridge. When I was little, my mom would microwave a pillow filled with rice and tuck it into my bed on winter nights. When the CDC outfitted my island, they didn't include a microwave. Too many electrical devices would overload the diesel generator powering the cabin. As usual, I'll have to improvise. I dig out two clean pillowcases from the cupboard, fill them with dried rice and knot the ends shut. I throw the sacks on top of the wood stove, hoping they'll warm before the cloth catches fire. He tries to speak, but his words slur together. His eyelids droop. I'm not sure if it's safe to let him sleep, but watching his face fall slack eases the tension in my chest. Crouching on the floor by the wood stove, I wrap my arms around myself tight enough to ache. After a few minutes, the smell of scorching fabric and rice fills the room. I pull the pillowcase off the wood stove and tuck them under the blanket next to the boy's torso. He doesn't move. Hopefully they aren't hot enough to burn him, but that's the least of my worries. Now I wait. Story of my life. He may never wake up. Not a bad way to go. As I disinfect the kitchenette with bleach, my mind spins with possible outcomes. I can't tell Mrs. Wilson. Too many rules broken already. She cares about my well-being, but she works for the CDC. She'll have to tell them about the breach or lose her job. Maybe I can send him back to Valdez with Captain Curtis when he delivers my supplies, but how will I know he hasn't caught the rot? He can't stay, not even for a little while. This island is a death sentence, and I'm the executioner. He can't stay. Thank you, Ida. That was wonderful. Um, I learned from uh, a lot of story writers, especially Alexander Philippe back there, that there are really only three stories. A stranger comes to town, someone goes on a journey, a kayaker in distress gets discovered <laughs> by a highly contagious woman. So that was great. You, you did that third one perfectly. Thank you. Uh, the next two people, the introducer and the introducee, um, I have to say, I love them both. Um, they're both amazing people. One of them is a little bit, well, a lot cuter, a lot cuter than the other one. Um, they're both amazingly talented short story writers. Both of them have been associated with Lighthouse and various shapes reforms for a really long time. Where's, where's the one? I see the one. Where's the other? There he is. Okay, good. Um, they're both really cute. One of them... Uh, one of them is the mother of my two daughters, so um, I perhaps am more fond of her just a little bit more than the other one. So, um. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, the thing I forgot besides that, um, the second thing, um, in case you want to listen to me talk like this more or over again, this is being podcasted, um, and all of our events get podcasted. By Jeremy, the wonderful Jeremy over there. Yes, Jeremy. That was lukewarm, but I know they really meant it. They really felt it. That was good. Um, Yeah. So if you go to our website, good luck finding our podcast page. Uh, But there's a link to our podcast page. And we've been podcasting this stuff for probably like six years now. So you can get the draft 1.0 and check it out. It's really good. Oh, yeah, you can subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I highly recommend it. All right, back to the two people I love. So, anyways, um, please give it up for the lovely Andrea Dupree. I didn't know you felt that strongly about John. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. It's good this is almost over. Um, Thank you. That was a terrific reading, and uh, I totally agree about the boots. I mean, that's fabulous. And uh, we had several of our own kind of dystopic um, moments at Lighthouse. And I kind of mark my time um, by, like, the pre-John Holly era, which was sad and 
lots of temp jobs, and um, it didn't feel like things were really flowing. And then John Hawley came in, and he knows how to write stories, but he also knows how to read stories um, in a way that makes the, the person who wrote it feel understood. Those of you who are in the Thursday, how many in the Thursday night workshop are here? Yeah. Well, uh, okay, so I hoped for, like, a resounding... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Woo! <laughs> they know. John, he he brings it on the page, and I can kind of... I, I remember throughout the years so many of his stories, whether he's writing about husbands and wives, um, boyfriends, girlfriends, best friends. Um, this one, we're going to see a father-son story. There's always something that just makes you stop and say... Damn, he he got that. He surprised me. He uh, turned it in a way I didn't expect. From what I know about John, he grew up kind of all over the world as an army brat. And uh, man, if he's not out uh, air traffic controlling or observing the weather or giving blood, I mean, he does all these different really or, or, or driving across country to see his musician daughter, who's also amazing. Um, he's sitting in the workshop bringing us really fancy scotch. Is it scotch? It's really fancy. What's it called? It's called scotch. It's called scotch. And he even made, he made a sign on it that said, bring out for emergencies. And I think we've brought it out almost every week. Anyway, <laughs> you're in for a treat. Uh, I love this guy, Mr. John Holly. Thank you. First off, I got to correct that. Not Army Brat, Air Force. Uh, at any rate, this is the ending of a short story set in the early 70s. Uh, it, uh, maybe to get in a mental mindset, you're 10 years old. If I can remember it, you can. Uh, you're sitting in the back seat of your family car. Dad's driving, mom's in the right seat. He just left a school thing. It's late afternoon, getting to early evening. And surrounded by traffic in your little town, cars around you start to stop. All of them are stopping, and your father stops. Doors are opening. People are climbing out of their cars in the middle of the street. And they all are facing a direction looking at something that you can't see. And your father salutes. All the kids put their hands over their hearts, as does the mother. And what they're facing is uh, the base flag. It's the base or post flag. Every night at sunset, they let it down. And they play taps across loudspeakers all over the base. And you're re if you're outside, you're required to stop Face the direction you know the flag is. Put your hand over your heart or salute as appropriately. And that happens all over the world. And that's how these kids grow up. And I know a few in here think this is normal, just like I am. <laughs> and it changes the way you view the world. That flag is something different. And the common ground, the commonality between the flag and Mecca is both unremarked and ironic. But... Uh, <laughs> At any rate, that's what this kid, the protagonist in this story, is an 18-year-old military brat. Uh, he grew up in the Army, and the time period is the early 70s. His father's a career Army man, veteran of three wars, just back from his third. Um, and he's an 18-year-old kid, so he's rebellious, and their relationship has been tumultuous over the past while, and... Uh, that's about where we are. <clears throat> Coffee running slow, taking forever. You hear a stumble in the hall, heavy dragging. You know it's him. You wanted to be out of the house by now. 
We need to talk. His words are slurred. You don't want to hear them anyway. There must be a bottle you missed somewhere. You're 18 years old. A week, you're out of here. Drafted. You pour what coffee there is into your cup. I'm talking to you. His voice lowers a register. In the past, a signal to either run or face him. But now, now you've outgrown him. The moments are past when he owns the physical. The old man won't want to get bounced off a wall today. And with him drunk, that's the way it would go. A tingle of fear, even so, down deep. An inexplicable sadness, too. You put cream in your coffee. Say, you're going to wake mom. He growls, I'll wake anybody I goddamn want to wake. I'm out of here, Pops. Catch you tonight. You shuffle toward the door, pressing a lid on the cup, shaking a little in spite of knowing the man won't hurt you. Your father says, please, you stop dead. I need to tell you something, Jack. You start walking again. It'll have to wait. You're through the door and halfway to your Jeep, cursing against tears coming from nowhere. You lever into the seat, no top on it in summer. Not looking back to the house, but you know he's there, hands pressed unsteadily to the doorframe, watching you leave. He's been mad at something since he came back, burned brown from a year in the Nam, coming back to a boy that somehow grew bigger and faster than he. Shit, you, supposed to be all grown up, and you're mad at yourself and confused and fucking clueless, and you're fucking crying. That night, making a point to get home long after you know he's gone to bed, you sneak down the stairs to your room. You're asleep within moments. You wake without knowing why, and then you know he's in there, in the pre-dawn twilight. He braces you always have expecting to get dragged out of bed by your foot with a shouted, Wasted daylight! Every hunting trip started that way. Instead, you see a drawn cigarette flare bright, and the bed sinks a little as he sits down. You wake, Junior? Like I could sleep with you banging around. Don't lie, I've been here a few, Shorty. You can smell the sourness of booze lifting off him, but he doesn't sound drunk. And? I wanted to talk to you just a minute. Talk. Metallic click, almost a ring. He's opening and closing a zippo. The sound is part of him. He inhales deep. It comes out as a sigh. Your reporting date's next Monday, right? Yeah. I'll take you. What time? Don't bother. Tracy's taking me. He inhales again, ragged. Suppose that's right, you two kids. He takes a drag on the cigarette. In the glow, his face is older than you remember. He says, marry that girl. Down the road, maybe. Road's shit, they don't go where you think. Marry her. That's what you wanted to talk about? No, but he doesn't say anything else. What then? Give me a second. Sure, be wasting time sleeping anyway. He doesn't say anything. The cigarette wobbles as you choose to filter. You decide to wait it out. Won't get back to sleep anyway. Light from the sunrise is starting to hit the window. He starts slow. It was this kid, a kid about your age. There's a lot of us. You're fucking writer than you know, smartass. His name, I can't remember it. We just called him Killer. Lady Killer from Bill Beetle Bailey, you remember? We had him for a bit and play coup, pushing army paper around, making coffee, grunt. He had some kind of infection on his leg, some month of light duty. Everything got infected over there. He waggles an arm at you, showing a bandage even after a month home. He says, they had him in a pup tent on the flight line. Air Force had empty barracks everywhere, and they had army, and they billeted army medical holes and fucking tits. He drew in the cigarette. It was nearly gone. I put him on a couch in our day room. 
I let him use my room when we're in the field, inventorying tunnels and shit. He smiles at you, a drawn, unhappy one. You don't respond. After a month, Killer goes back to his unit, someplace up in Icor, Indian country. I didn't think about him again. He drops a cigarette into water glass in your nightstand and takes a pack of Marlboro out of his pocket. A couple months later, I'm in the BX. I hear somebody crying, really just bawling. It's Killer, standing by the magazine rack. He's got one open, a full page out of some kind. Something stupid like aftershave. He's dirty, crap and dirt just falling off him like he's been buried. Stink like jungle and things you don't want to know about. I put my hand on his shoulder. I say, it's okay. Hey, kid, it's okay. He drops the magazine on the floor and he runs. Your father taps the pack on his wrist, draws a cigarette out with his lips. He says, I started to chase him, but I didn't. What the hell do I tell him? the hell do I know? The Zippo rings open and he lights a cigarette. I picked up the magazine and flipped through it. Normal shit. Ads for cars, aftershave, cough syrup. An article about the scourge of crabgrass. He shook his head. Kids crawling in the muds, getting their balls blown off and guts blown out. Over here, they're worried about fucking crabgrass. He drew on the cigarette, still not looking at you. He looks between his knees at the floor, smoke curling around his face. He never looks at you. Shorty, if you'll go to Canada, if you'll just go, I'll support you. I will. Money, whatever. He quit talking. A yawning silence you have no idea how to fill. After a minute, he just stands up and leaves your room. He leaves you with that. Mr. America, he leaves you with that. Thank you, John. Powerful stuff. Um, At the behest of poets everywhere in the audience... And all around the nation, I'd like to close by reading a poem. Not one I've written. It's by, um, uh, I know you're disappointed. It's by Billy Collins. It's called The Lanyard, and I think it really sort of captures the way I always feel about every single gift I give. The Lanyard. The other day, I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one into the past more suddenly, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a (laughs) gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me how to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. 
And here I wish to say to her now is a smaller gift, not the worn truth that you never can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of Borden would be enough to make us even. Thank you. Thank you to our wonderful readers and the instructors who introduced them. Great job tonight. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.